Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the year ahead with my friend, Doug Wagner. How's it going, Doug Wagner? Great, Joe. How are you doing today? Doing great, doing great. Uh, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. I'm calling from my home office, but uh, the company is based in Chicago, Illinois, and I'm Doug Wagner, the CEO of Echo Global Logistics. Very nice, very nice. And we were just talking before we hit record, you've been there for 16 years, which is almost all the way back to the founding, right? Yeah, I actually joined the two founders in the first year. So they were a couple of serial entrepreneurs that have started many, many companies, including Groupon is one you've probably heard of. That's right. That's right. I was just talking to Chris um, before we hit record from Echo, your uh, marketing guy in, uh, we were talking about University of Michigan. Uh, Eric went, Eric, Lo, Lo, is it Lovkowski? Yeah, he's right. a University of Michigan guy. He's from Southfield, Michigan. Very nice. Very nice. You got to know it's going to work if it's a Michigan, Michigan Wolverine roots in there. So um, anyway, Doug, tell us a little bit about Echo. What do you guys do? I mean, I think anyone who's in the freight brokerage business knows, but for the rest of us, what do you do? Well, you know, we're a, a non-asset transportation company. And the, the way I describe our company, you know, in the elevator to somebody that knows nothing about it is, is that, you know, we move about 18,000 shipments every day using other people's trucks. And the way we do that is with a lot of technology and data science. And we've got, you know, a, a large database of trucking companies. Uh, we've got a large database of shippers and we essentially make a market for transportation capacity and we're multimodal. So we, we serve less than truckload, full truckload, partial truckload, intermodal. We do some warehousing. We do some temperature controlled. So, you know, we try to be as many things to as many people as we can. Yeah. A lot of times on my podcast, I'll say, who's your sweet spot? But when you're as big as Echo Global Logistics, I've looked at it. You guys are always on the list of the top freight brokers, top three PLs. So I'm imagining you're going to tell me your sweet spot's a lot of places. <laughs> well, and another thing that we do is what we call managed transportation. So you, you take all of that brokerage capability that we have and, and all the technology and we act as a business process outsourcer for a lot of small companies that, that want to outsource the shipping function to us. So, you know, for those companies, we assign dedicated resources. We integrate our technology with their ERP systems. And then as they're placing orders in their own system, that's queuing up as transportation for us to execute on. And that's, that's about 25% of our business. But that's also a, a multimodal offering, but it's a little bit specialized. Yeah, well, again, it's the if you went back, you know, twenty years ago in this business, it was I would call a freight broker to get me a truck. I would never count on them to bring me technology. Now, when somebody's bringing, you know, coming to you, I'm assuming they, a lot of them are saying we want your technology along with your operational expertise and your 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 buying power and all the rest. But the tech is increasingly important in those decisions. Am I right? It is, but you know we. We believe that you've got to have sort of a multi-prong approach. You know, if you want to have maximum market penetration, you know, you got to think about who the audience is. And so in our case, 
we really have, you know, two constituencies. One is the shippers, you know, the people that give us the freight. And the second one are the carriers. And, and if you think about both of those two groups, they exist on a spectrum of sophistication, I'll call it, you know? So on one end of the spectrum, we have shippers and carriers that want to have a touchless relationship they don't want to talk. They don't want to email. They want to use API connectivity so that our systems are talking with their systems and a transaction can flow, you know, all the way through, including visibility. But on the other end of the spectrum, you've got very unsophisticated shippers that still give us paper bills of lading. And you've got small trucking companies that run their business on a whiteboard. And then there's everything in between. So, so for us to really address the market, we have to be able to do all of those things. So we think that the technology is vitally important, but also the people and the relationships are just as important. And for every shipper or carrier, there's a sweet spot of how much tech and how much touch they want. Yeah. And you meet them where they're at. <laughs> and and I'm assuming it's the same applies to your asset-based partners, right? Some are onesie, twosie trucking companies and some are... Uh the biggest trucking companies in the world. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and we have about 50,000 trucking companies in our database and, and some of them are very sophisticated and, and they only want to do business with people that can deal with them in that manner, you know? And then on the other hand, you've got a, a dispatcher trying to control five trucks that are running around the country. And, and uh, he'd rather just make a phone call and, and say, I've got a truck stranded in Pensacola and I need to get him to the West coast. Can you help me? Excellent. Excellent. So I want to come back and talk a little bit more about Echo in a minute, but I want to understand a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you got to Echo. What what I want to know is how do you get that top job, Doug? Everyone, give us a few bullet points on how you get that top job so you can walk us through that. <laughs> well, I have to be honest and tell you that I think 50% of it is luck, right? You know, you got to be in the right place. But life. you have to say that. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, I think I was especially lucky because I graduated from college. First of all, I grew up in California, Northern California. I went to college in San Diego, San Diego State, got an econ degree and a computer science minor. And my first job out of college was in a management training program for an LTL trucking company. Oh, nice. That's a good background to have. Yeah, but and it was right after deregulation. So, you know, I, I remember I went into... I was getting recruited, you know, and, and I was, I, I was cont contemplating two different jobs. I had a job offer from EDS, if you remember Ross Perot's sure. company, which was Still a big company. Guy. Yeah. And then I had a job from a McLean trucking company, which was at the time was the fourth largest LTL carrier. They no longer exist. Also, I think they invented or get a lot of credit for the shipping container. Am I right? That was Malcolm McLean. So he was the founder of McLean Trucking Company, but he moved on and got into the ocean uh, shipping business. And he, he did, in fact, invent the ocean container. And by the way, guys, if, if you haven't, I, I, I reference it a lot. The book, The Box, is um, excellent. It, we wouldn't have global trade the way it is without that box. But I think what's interesting to me is if you read the book, they were shipping containers, like basically trailers, I think from like... Florida up to the East Coast to get around traffic. 
And I don't think anybody in, at that one minute thought this is going to change global trade. It was like, I would like to get around Philadelphia and New York traffic. Anyway, enough of my blather. Get back to your story there. Again, it, we wouldn't have global trade. All the inexpensive goods that we're able to get from China and Korea and Ch Japan elsewhere never would have come without those boxes. So you were, you were, you were touching history there, Doug. Well, so when I got recruited, they had a, it was one of the few trucking companies at that time that actually recruited people out of, out of uh, college. You know, the, the trucking industry was really a, a kind of a good old boy business, as they say. And I remember that, uh, the recruiter who also happened to be the Western division vice president of sales said, we've got two tracks. We've got an operations track and we've got a sales track, which, which would you prefer? And I said, well, you know, I've, I've worked in, you know, when I was in college and high school, I, I worked in all my spare time in construction. So I felt very co comfortable in a blue collar environment and, and I'm kind of an introvert. So I couldn't see myself in sales. So I said, yeah, I'll go into operations. And he said, well, I think you'd be pretty good at sales. And I go, I don't think so. And he goes, well, let me just describe the two jobs. He said, in operations, you're going to be working on a freight dock, probably at night, supervising Teamsters. But if you're in sales, you're going to get a company car, you're going to wear a suit, and you're going to take people to lunch and dinner and ball games. He said, so which do you think you'd rather do? And I said, operations. <laughs> I swear every every ops every sales guy should have an ops background. That's how I feel about it. Well, I'm gonna I'm getting ready to tell you the opposite. So <laughs> he he basically answered my response by saying, I'm gonna put you in sales because I think you'd be good at it. So I go, okay, you know, so I needed a job. I took it. <laughs> right. And I but I did go through there. They had a very extensive training program and the for for sales it was a six month program and for ops it was a twelve month program. And the first three weeks, regardless of the track that you were on, you got to drive a truck because they wanted you to understand nice. the life of a truck driver. And, and then the rest of the training was, you know, working on the dock, working in the corporate office, working in terminals. So it was, it was really a great education. And I came out of that and I, I, I got assigned in, into a sales territory in Oakland, California. And, uh, it was funny because, uh, like I said, it was kind of a good old boys industry. Most of the other salespeople were 40-year-old men that, you know, drank and smoked and told good jokes. And I, I went out with them and, and learned the ropes and then got dumped into my own sales territory, which was uh, South San Francisco at the time, Burlingame and, and San Mateo. And I remember my, my very first day of making sales calls, I... I, I walked, went down to the street in, in Burlingame that had a lot of warehouses on it. And I parked my car and I walked into the first building that I saw. And in those days, you didn't need an appointment. And I said, uh, I went up to the receptionist and I said, I'd like to talk to the traffic manager. And I was sitting, standing in the lobby full of people and all waiting for other appointments. And so the, the receptionist said, just a moment, I'll get him. So that pretty soon this man walks out. And I'm standing there in the middle of the lobby with an audience. And he said, uh, can I help you? And I'm thinking to myself, are you going to invite me back to your office or a conference room? Or do we have to do this right here? And this is my very first sales call ever. So he stands there and says, how can I help you? So I'm looking around and I got this audience watching me. And I, and I froze. I didn't know what to say. <laughs> I was self-conscious and embarrassed. And so... 
after a pregnant pause, I pulled a business card out of my pocket and gave it to him. And he, he looked at it and I stuck my hand out and he kind of slowly shook my hand. And I said, I'd like to congratulate you. And he said, for what? And I said, you're the very first sales call that I've ever made. <laughs> Did that work? <laughs> he smiled and he said, all right, we'll keep working on it because you got you got a long way to go. <laughs> and I said, thank you very much. And I turned around and walked out the door. And uh, I tell that story to all of our new hires because I was a pretty bad salesman in the beginning. And uh, but over time, you know, over over the months, I actually got pretty good at it. And I figured out my own style and my own voice. And 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 like I said, I'm an introvert, but I but I figured out how to come out of my shell and, and do it. And and eventually a lot more stories, but I, I won't bore you with it. I did move into operations and I ran a small terminal in Stockton, California. And then I went up to Seattle, Washington. I was a sales manager in Seattle and uh, and then I was a regional manager in Seattle. So I had sales and ops in a, in a small region. And, and by the way, during this time, McLean went out of business. And I ended up working at Yellow Freight. Oh, okay. So you've been at a few of the uh, the uh, the big dogs. And so I, I I was at Yellow for 13 years. So went from Seattle. I went to uh, the Denver regional office. I was a regional sales manager in Denver, and then went to McLean's corporate. I'm sorry, Yellow's corporate office in Overland Park, Kansas, and had a variety of different jobs. I worked in sales. I worked in operations. I worked in IT, engineering, marketing, customer service. And that sort of gave me a good, you know, general education in, in all of the various disciplines. And, and from that, I got an opportunity to uh, go to Daylight Transport out back in Long Beach and uh, started out as a chief information officer and built a, a TMS for the company. Uh, we, we did all that work. This was back in 1998. And we, we did most of the work in India before it was popular. And we, we built a web-based platform that was... Uh, all client server based, and then shortly after became president of Daylight. Oh wow! So I ran Daylight for a few years, and then I, I moved to Chicago. I got recruited by USF Corporation at the time. USF was a holding company. They owned five LTL carriers. They owned a truckload carrier, and they owned a uh, logistics company. And I worked for the CEO, which was Sam Skinner. He was previous to that White House Chief of Staff for George Bush Senior. And he was also the Secretary of Transportation. So he was a, a lot of fun to work for. He had some great stories of, about uh, working in Washington. And uh, worked for Sam sort of as, as the uh, interface between him and the operating company presidents. So I got to do a lot of strategy work, technology work, interact with the different companies in the portfolio. And then eventually got to go run one of the companies, Best Way, out of Scottsdale, Arizona, and then lo and behold, uh, Yellow Freight bought USF. So I was, uh, I was back at Yellow again. And I did that for a couple more years. And then I, I left to start a technology business. So I started a, a TMS business called Selectrans. Actually wrote a lot of the code myself, me and a, and a, a guy that had joined me from Daylight, Daryl Scholl. And Daryl and I spent about a year writing code and creating this platform, which was intended for shippers and 3PLs. And then that's when uh, my old boss, Sam Skinner, introduced me to Brad Kewell and Eric Lefkowski, who were starting up Echo. And uh, they were giving me a demo of this. You know, they, they weren't really transportation people, but they had 
they had a vision for using technology to disintermediate, you know, in the in the logistics space. They, they've done that in multiple industries. And they said, we're looking for a tech savvy CEO that comes from the transportation industry. And I said, well, I probably fit that description, but I'm not sure I'm looking for a job. I just started a company. And I remember they said, well, let us give you a tech demo. So they demonstrated their system. And when they were done, they said, well, what do you think? And it was still fairly new. The company was less than a year old. I said, well, you want me to be honest? And they said, yeah. And I said, I think it kind of sucks. <laughs> I didn't have anything to lose. I really wasn't looking for a job, but I was, you know, and they said, well, why they do you had to be it- intrigued by that. Yeah. So they said, well, why do you think it sucks? So I told them and they said, well, then show us your system. I said, all right, give me the keyboard. So I, I took the keyboard and logged into my system and I gave them a demo. And, uh, when I was done, they said, that's it. You're our CEO. And I go, what do you mean? They go, you know the industry, you know tech, you can do a demo. Like, like that, that's what we're looking for. I said, well, I don't even know if I want to do it. I said, I, I just started a company. We built software. We, we've got customers starting to get some revenue. And they and, and Eric said, I don't care. He said, we'll, we'll just buy your company. And I said, well, what should I do with my software? And he goes, do whatever you want with it. He says, keep it, run it on the side, integrate it with Echo. We don't care. So I thought about it and, you know, my, my whole play was a SaaS business that was going to make revenue on, on software. And they were smart enough to realize that that's not where the big money is. The big money is in the freight, you know, and, and using technology as an enabler. And they had capital, they had access to capital. So I ended up joining them in December of 2006. We had about 70 employees and $6 million of revenue. And I've been there ever since. Yeah, and you've got significantly more than 70 employees and $6 million in revenue now. I won't ask you to say unless you want to, but I know it's a lot. Well, we have about 3,300 employees today, including some agents, but you know, mostly our W-2. And our revenue's just south of $4.5 billion. Jeez, oh, peace. Nice job. Nice job. I, I, my only question, I, you're, a, you're a California guy. How'd you end up, how do you feel about living in that Chicago weather? Well, I always tell people Chicago is a world-class city, but the weather sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Detroit area, so your weather's we're four hours behind you. But yeah, well, you again, that's a fantastic career, and you again, but you've touched a lot of these legends, and uh, you're running a legend again. I, if you look at, uh, I'm not going to mention all the names, but if somebody was to type in the top freight brokers, you guys were around that list, and a lot of the companies. We're around a long time. You guys, I won't say you're a newcomer because of what you guys have done so quickly, but 20 some years old is, or 20 years old, maybe? Absolutely incredible. So, anyway, I want to talk a little bit about a year they had, use some of that, use some of that experience you've gained. We've had uh, a weird time. Obviously, we went through COVID, weird, weird time. We saw the rates go crazy. We saw a lot of, I was mentioning this before we hit record. A lot of freight brokers growing. And we have a number of freight brokerages seemingly grow. And as you mentioned, no no barriers to entry. But I want to talk about, we're in a little rough economy now. We don't know how how rough. But I want to talk about the year ahead and what you see, not only for uh, the industry, but also for the economy and all the rest. Sure. And I think to assess the year ahead and where we are now, you actually have to look backwards a little bit. And you know, if you go back to 2008, when we had the 
you know, global financial crisis, GFC as it's known. One of the things that bailed us out was, was, you know, something that's called quantitative easing, right? So the Fed used their balance sheet to buy, you know, treasuries, securities, mortgage-backed securities, and it injected cash into our economy. And I don't remember the exact numbers off off the top of my head, but I'll, I'll be directionally close. At the, in 2008, the Fed's balance sheet, I think, for this sort of thing, had about $800 million on it. If you fast forward to 2021, that number is closer to $14 trillion. So, So there's been a massive amount of cash pumped into our economy. And it stimulated the economy, and we... We got out of that crisis. We had a big boom in in uh, GDP and, and you know, equity prices. We had virtually zero interest rates, and so so there were a lot of stimulating factors that were going on in in the economy. And and the Fed backed off on quantitative easing. I want to say somewhere around 2013 or 14, but they'd still injected a lot of cash in the economy. Then along comes COVID. And of course, you know, immediately in probably March of, I guess it was 2021, things shut down, small businesses closed, hotels, restaurants, you know, everything shut down. And, and we had all that federal stimulus, which was uh, like another $4 trillion. And, and so all that money coming into the economy, you know, has to get worked out. And, and so today we find ourselves in an inflationary environment and I think this last few months with the political processes that were going on, you know, that, that was sort of covered up a little bit about, you know, what, what that all meant, especially coming out of COVID when everybody was locked down and, and stopped buying services and going to restaurants and going on cruises and vacations. They bought stuff, right? And all of that buying of stuff was very stim, you know, stimulating to the economy, at least for the product portion of our economy. And, and then when, COVID sort of eased up and everybody came out of their houses. They, they had all the stuff they needed and they, and they quit buying it and they started buying experiences. So, so that was a slowdown in the movement of products. And then, and then, you know, all this cash that's been pumped into the economy is, is, uh, you know, creating an inflationary effect that, you know, now that the election's over, I think people are coming to grips with and starting to admit the reality of it. But prices are up significantly, and you know, never mind the transportation space, but prices in general. You know, and we all know in transportation, you know, what happens in a tight market and what happens in a loose market. So I think, you know, the economy has to sort this out. We've we've had, you know, very high employment levels in, during COVID. A lot of people left the the, the economy and uh, the working economy. A lot of workers left and went into the gig economy. So restaurant workers and hotel workers that were unemployed during COVID have since found other jobs. You know, they're driving for Uber, they're driving for Lyft, they're driving for DoorDash, they're working at home, you know, in a call center, and and they don't want to go back to the restaurant. They don't want to go back to the hotel. And so a lot of businesses are having trouble finding employees. And the Fed has a dual mandate of managing inflation and unemployment. And, And given that we still have reasonably high employment, that means they only have one thing to focus on and it's in, it's uh, inflation. So they've aggressively raised interest rates. There's, there's nothing to stop them from doing it more as long as we have full employment. 
And I think they're going to continue to, until they get inflation under control. And, and most of your listeners are probably too young to remember 1978, 79, and 80 when we had runaway inflation. But, you know, we had inflation back then that got up as high as 13%, and interest rates got as high as 21%. I remember that. I remember my, uh, my now ex-wife was selling commercial real estate, and she's very good at it. But she was selling mostly to doctors and selling medical buildings. And she said, the interest rate is so ridiculous that what has traditionally been an easy buy for a doctor is his office is he's not buying them. And I, I remember holding off buying a house because I was like, I'll never live in a, I'll never buy a house at this rate. I mean, it's, it was shocking. Well, and, and think about it with interest rates like we're seeing now or like we could see, you know, it's going to take a lot of home buyers out of the market. And a lot of people that have variable interest rate loans aren't going to be able to afford to make their payments when the interest rates adjust. And, and I, I read today that some drivers are not making the payments on their trucks because as the rates dropped and they were at, they, they might have gone in at a fairly high interest rate buying that truck. I should think that fact they bought at a high rate and now their rates are real low and they can't make the money to, to, to pay for it. So they're saying, hey, here's my truck back. Well, the price per mile is coming down and the, and the payment on their truck is going up and the truck they bought was 40 percent more expensive than it would have cost four years ago. So if you're a small owner operator or a small fleet, you know, the economics in today's trucking market aren't very attractive. So we are starting to see capacity leave the market. But I think, you know, so all, all that talk about, you know, interest rates and unemployment, I mean, if we keep raising the interest rates, which we have to, to tame inflation, it is going to start to drive unemployment. And you're seeing it now. You're seeing it first in the tech industries, venture-backed startups that, that aren't profitable yet, that did a last round and, and they're burning through their cash. They're, it's going to be hard for them to raise their next round. Certainly, they won't raise it at the same valuation as their last round. Right. So, so what that might mean is all these, and we have a ton of them. I talk to a lot of these companies that have taken venture capital. So they said that my company's worth a hundred million dollars. That's based on the last guy who invested. It was, <laughs> and then and then the next guy that invests though says, "Oh no, you're worth fifty million dollars." And that guy's at the top of the top of the heap in terms of uh, payback, right? So he, that's well, why right. his dollars are going to buy a lot more equity, you know, a bigger percentage right. of the company than the previous investors. And and where does that equity come from? It comes from the employees and the founders. So. That's a, I think that's called a down round, and I experienced it when I worked for a Silicon Valley company to the point where I think the founders left because they, their equity was so diminished by the down rounds. <laughs> and uh, I guess that's you, you live by the sword, you die by it, but um, it's, it's going to change our industry. So what are the impacts to our space? So we've talked, you give a, gave us a great overview of what you see in the macro. What is it going to mean for our business, transportation and logistics? Well, you know, I, people are debating whether we're going to have a recession or not. I, I would contend that we are, we're already in one. The question is, does it get worse and for, for how long does it last? And I think 2023, you know, could end up being the lost year for freight because, you know, the, I think the layoffs are, are just now starting to come. You know, you've seen it in tech and, and venture-backed startups, but the, the more traditional 
companies and economies are starting to look for ways to cut cut costs because their sales are down, their volumes are down. So I think, you know, in 2023, we're going to see at least hiring freezes across you know many different industries. We're going to see uh, reductions in force, and that's going to create, you know, social pressures, you know, in our economy. And and at some point, the Fed will have to start lowering interest rates to stimulate the economy once again, right? And and get companies to invest. But, you know, the current environment, it's, it's hard to do M&A because the debt's expensive. And when the debt gets expensive, the valuations come down. So, you know, I think 2023 is going to be a tough year with lower volumes and lower prices on freight. That being said, though, I, I do think there's an opportunity for us to have favorable market conditions, you know, perhaps before the economy recovers. And that's because the supply of capacity is somewhat capped. You know, the the uh, the trucking companies, you know, in a good market with high rates tend to want to go out and buy more trucks and, and take advantage of that. I, I think this last peak that we went through, you didn't see so much of that because it was hard to find drivers and trucks were expensive and, and they showed some discipline. And now that we're in a, a softening freight market, you know, there's there's plenty of capacity. However, the last big boom in buying trucks was 2018, and they typically have about a four-year trade cycle. So 2022 should be the year where trucking companies buy trucks, at least to replace their aging fleet. And right now, the truck manufacturers, because of their own supply chain issues, are having trouble fulfilling the orders. And so in a lot of cases, if a trucking company orders 100 trucks, they're not going to get all 100 trucks. They're going to get a partial allocation. And so what, what I think that means, and, and it's going to take a, probably till 2024 for that to get sorted out. So I think trucking companies will be replacing old equipment. They won't be adding new capacity. And I think some of these smaller truckers that we talked about earlier are going to exit the market, especially the owner operators. So if there's any sort of stimulus or catalyst that creates, you know, even a moderate surge in, in freight demand, we're going to be capped on capacity and we'll be back in tight market conditions again, which will be ironic if we're still in a, in a soft economy or a recession. Yeah. None of that sounds good, Doug. But one of the things when you were talking about the tech companies and, you know, obviously it's going to be a challenging time for them, but haven't we seen so many of our, uh, so many of our improvements in the supply chain have been through technology. Before we hit record, you mentioned Jet McCandless. We're talking about some of these and, you know, these, these things revolutionized our space, transforming our space with tech. You guys, I know are spending, and we'll talk about your technology in a minute, but we need all that tech. <laughs> so so I know some of it's going to go away because it might be not necessary, but man, we've gotten so used to technology constantly upgrading us. Yeah, tech is, uh, well, first of all, I would start by saying, you know, when I got into the industry, you know, the transportation industry lagged most other industries in, in, in the adoption of tech. I remember in the 80s when we were able to electronically trace shipments. Now, that, that sounds kind of silly, but when I started in the industry, if a customer called up and said, where's my freight, I would have to get up and walk over to a file cabinet, find for the day that they shipped it, look, look for the folder that had all of the bills of lading and manifests in it, find what trailer we loaded it out on, call ahead to that terminal, see if it had arrived yet, and if it had unloaded, and if they transferred it to another truck. That's, that's how we did tracking. 
we didn't have email didn't exist then <laughs> we had pagers so yeah we've come a long way baby yeah. i would say that you know the technology is is now on par with other industries if there, there's lots of versions of technology right if if if, the, if you and i want to start a broker tomorrow in my garage we can do it pretty cheaply there's no barriers to entry there's lots of off-the-shelf software packages that we could use yep. on a SaaS basis. So we, we pay by the transaction and we can implement it quickly and be up and running and do everything we need to be a freight broker, right? And a lot of people do that, you know, and they make a good living at it and, and more power to them. As you get bigger, you want to do things a little differently. I think I think as a startup broker, you tend to run your business the way the software designer intended you to. That's very As true. As you get bigger and more sophisticated, you try to find what I would call proprietary processes and workflows. You know, how are we going to, how are we going to find the freight? You know, what are we, how are we going to quote the freight? How do we find the truck? And, you know, do we have ownership of the carriers? You know, how do we, you know, there's all the strategy about how you actually execute and ideally, you want to build your software system around your own proprietary process so that you can make that process as efficient as possible. So that's sort of the second type of uh, technology, which I would call the proprietary homegrown TMS. But then there's a whole another category of technology, which I would call third party technologies that everybody could use. You know, and you, you mentioned Jet Mechanicals, a P44. I mean, Jet's got a beautiful business that produces technology that we could certainly build ourselves, but let's just take LTL tracking, for instance. You know, there's 125 LTL carriers in our network. We, we could build APIs to connect to all 125 of those carriers. Right. It's not hard, but it's a lot of work. And meanwhile, P44 has already done that. So if we just connect to P44, we're now suddenly connected to 125 carriers. You know, there's so, so many areas in our industry where that type of technology exists, you know, whether it's checking out the safety records of carriers, uh, checking on their insurance, getting tracking data. And, and so, you know, all of these new technologies, which are available not only for, for big companies like us, but for small companies using off-the-shelf software, is really taking our industry to the next level. And then, you know, some of us are starting to employ a lot of what we call it echo strategic analytics. Other people would call it data science, but that's, that's the utilization of math, you know, algorithms. Sometimes it's very sophisticated machine learning or neural networks. In other cases, it's good old fashioned statistics, but it's, it's taking all that data that exists in our business and putting it to work. And, 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 and our original vision for that was, you know, think about what Amazon does with data. You know, think about what Google does with data. Think about what Netflix does with data. You know, they understand their customers, they understand their behavior, and then they take action based on that. They make better decisions. And so, you know, about six or seven years ago, we made the commitment to introduce data science into our business so that we can execute better, you know, and, and, some of that, some of that is is beneficial to shippers. Some of it's beneficial to carriers. They 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 may or may not see some of that. Most of it is internal to us inside of a black box that makes us operate more efficiently. Right, right. And that so the, an example of that data science might be, and and we've done this 
anecdotally for years where, Doug, if I'm moving your freight and every you call me on Thursday morning and say, I need you to pick that up Friday. But every once in a while, you call on Wednesday morning. I could at some point get the data and share it with you and say, Doug, you pay 22% less every time you call me on Wednesday. Can we somehow get a little advance notice? And and it's we've done it anecdotally for years, just as we've combined loads for years. You know, but that's using human brain power, and it's not dependable, right? Um, we it require a whole bunch of uh, looking through data that we're not designed for. <laughs> well, I mean, with machine learning, you you can find patterns in data that a human would never see. Yeah, that 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 one I described. Yeah, humans used to see it, but not as much as they should. But you've got so. What would be an example of one that we wouldn't even know? Well, you know, with, with 30 or 40,000 customers, many of them are very, very small micro shippers. <laughs> There's a, there tends to be a lot of churn, right? You know, and, but sometimes you don't know if it's churn or if they, they just don't have a shipment. They're I mean, slow. if a customer yeah. only has a shipment, you know, once a week, you, you tend not to notice them that much, right? We've got an algorithm that will detect when a, a customer has stopped doing business with us based on a disruption in their shipping patterns. So it will alert us that you may better call this customer because it looks like they've become inactive. And to be honest with you, with you know 30,000 customers, you might miss that if you're not looking for it. Oh yeah. We've got it we've got other algorithms that, you know, in, in our LTL business, you know, if, if I've got a shipment that's going to go from Chicago to Denver, you know, there's a, a whole lot of LTL carriers that could handle that for us. And they all charge us different prices, right? They, they charge us the price that they want in that lane. And so for a customer or even one of our employees that's going to route that shipment, they're looking at a selection of carriers and they can see, well, you know, carrier X is this price, carrier Y is this price. This is their transit time. This is their on-time performance and, and make an informed selection. But what's interesting about that is that we take that data and we can see of all of the customers that use our technology and all of our employees that use our technology and the, and the hundreds of thousands of shipments that we handle, we can see which carriers people choose at what price. And, what's, and so we call this the elasticity of demand. So uh, uh, we can, or the elasticity of the demand for a brand. So we can tell you that, well, Carrier X must be pretty good because people will on average pay $10 higher than they will for Carrier Y, who has, you know, a significantly cheaper price. So we can see how people, how our shippers and our employees perceive the quality of a carrier. And we can also work with those carriers to help them understand how they're perceived. I mean, we have data that they don't, you know, because we see them in the marketplace and, and they don't get that, that view of themselves. So, you know, we work with That's carriers incredible. to help understand how their brand is perceived and how much people are willing to pay for it. We, we can look at individual shippers and know how price sensitive they are compared to others and, and adjust our pricing accordingly and truckload, we look at, think about how many origin destination pairs there are in the United States. Now, it, part of it depends on how do, you de, how do you define a market, right? But if you wanted to get really granular and say, okay, a market is a zip code, 
Well, there's 40,000 zip codes. So if you square that number, you get 1.6 billion OD pairs. And we calculate a price for every one of those OD pairs every day of what we think the market is. And it's look, and it's a bell curve, right? You know, most things in life right. fall into normal distribution. And so we know where a price is on that bell curve and whether it's a good price or a bad price. And that helps us then with our, our, our pricing decisions to the shipper and our buying decisions from the carrier. And we think it makes us better at managing our margins and being competitive in the marketplace. Yeah. Well, I, I know we've always kind of depended on that tribal knowledge and it's, it works. It's worked for a long time, but the problem is, you know, when we have a would have been around for a while, it doesn't work for the new people. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. But, but when COVID hits, how good is it? That's why you need a system like yours that says, Hey, the first day your systems were saying, Hey, we've got a whole bunch of new information, but they're making within two or three days. I imagine you said, we know what's going on as opposed to Joe, who might have a lot of tribal knowledge. And I just say, well, we've never been through anything like this. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the only thing, though, about algorithms, you know, I have a saying that uh, algorithms are only good if they're good. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is if I have, if I have an algorithm that tells me what the, the truckload price is supposed to be in a lane, it better be good because if it's if it's too high, I'm not going to get the freight. And if it's too low, I'm going to lose money. And so a big part of sort of algorithmic decision making is continuously refining your systems, learning from new data and understanding the length of the look back period, depending on how fast the market is changing at any moment in time. I'll tell you, I've, I've said it many times on my podcast, but it's the, it's still true. We're I think we're getting into a place of haves and have-nots when it comes to technology because just the stuff you described, this gives you the ability to do business faster, obviously. You can make smarter decisions. You can provide me with information and insights that I would never have if I worked with somebody smaller with less tech. And let's face it, your cost per, per transaction is going lower all the time because of your technology. And the guy I'm working with who uh, is a good guy and I, I have a relationship with, that's great. But at some point, a lot of us traded stockbrokers for online because the relationship wasn't worth $400 of trade, right? And I think that's what we're seeing in the market is the tech, the tech leaders are slowly but surely saying, yeah, we've got great relationships, but we also have great tech. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a big industry. It's a big market and there's lots of opportunity for everybody. But I do think, you know, if you want to scale in our industry, you've got to be making, you've got to be open to using a technology tools that are out there that some of which we, we talked about, but you also have to be thinking about proprietary technology that suits your own proprietary business processes and workflows. Yep. Doug, I know I don't have you infinitely. It was hard to get on your calendar. <laughs> I, guys, I was shocked to find out that the CEO of Echo has other responsibilities other than being on my podcast, but it happens. But uh, I got a question. Three questions answered any order you want. What's next for you, Doug Wagner? 
what's next for Echo, and then what's next for our industry? And we'll use this kind of as to wrap it all up. Okay, what's next for for Doug? Well, I'm I'm having fun. You know, I've, we we took the company private in uh, November of 21, so I've got a new private equity partner, the Jordan Company, and uh, they're a great partner. We've done two acquisitions since uh, we joined teams with them, so it's it's been fun to go from being a public company to a private company and, and having great partners that have... Is that easier? Well, I don't have to deal with Wall Street and all that that entails. So it, it frees up a lot of time. And the, the fortunate thing about our private equity partner, the Jordan Company, is that they really know our space. They've, they've owned a lot of assets in our space and they understand you know, the cycles, really everything that we do. And they're, and they're very helpful and constructive. So uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's kind of a, a new chapter for me in, in running the company. And, and I'm having a lot of fun. I'm, I'm, I'm getting to an age where I'm thinking about retirement at some point. But you know, it's, it's that tension of, you know, when am I going to hang it up? And I'm still having fun. So I still have to figure that out. What's next for Echo? Um, Look, we, we're four and a half billion this year. You know, I, I remember the first billion back in 2013. I didn't think we'd ever get there. And then it seems like the second billion came overnight and, and then everything else was a whirlwind. You know, I, I think in the not too distant future, we'll be a eight or $10 billion company, you know, and, wow. and I think uh, part of that's through acquisitions and part of that's through, you know, just organic growth. We're going to continue to be a non-asset company. We're going to expand our offering though so so you know we just we just bought a company that does a temperature controlled ltl non-asset it's pretty exciting they delivered all the big box retailers we, we think we can add a lot of density in that business we bought another company uh that does brokerage but their customers are international freight forwarders and so you know if you think about freight forwarders they they get the freight into the country but then they have to move it within the country and and there seems to be a language barrier between domestic freight and international freight. So uh, this company has bridged that gap and we're excited about uh, having a whole new set of customers to market to, uh, which are the international freight forwarders. And uh, we've got a lot more that we're working on in an M&A front. Uh, I mentioned the data science. We, we've got an exciting new product coming out uh, that we'll be announcing hopefully in the next few months that will, I think, be really interesting for our our trucking companies and it gives it, it's going to make their life a lot easier in managing their drivers and I'm excited about that. And then what was the third one? What's next for our industry? Oh. I think we kind of covered a lot of that, but please if you got something to say, please say it. I think the industry, you know, the the pace of technology adoption has accelerated. You know, I would in part thank Convoy and Uber Freight for that. You know, I think they they came out with, uh, you know, their their companies and their offerings, and they got a lot of the spotlight for a while. It kind of pissed me off, but but I still <laughs> tip my hat to them because I think all that attention on technology made shippers more aware of what they could do with technology, and and it created more interest. I think prior to that, there was a lot of I think the transportation industry led the shippers, you know, the, the, the trucking companies and the brokers were creating technology, but they were having trouble getting adoption. And, you know, we've, we've always thought of ourselves as a tech company and, and, and yet we couldn't get, you know, many of our, our truckers or our shippers to, to utilize the tech. And I think all the attention that's been placed on technology in the last five years 
has really accelerated shipper and carrier adoption of that technology. And then that ends up in the end benefiting us all. It benefits the shippers and the carriers and it benefits the transportation providers and it makes our industry more efficient. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and it's also I, I do a lot of interviews, obviously, and I talk to a lot of young people. And one of the things I say is uh, you wouldn't have been in this industry 10 years ago. There's, I mean, it was, you mentioned when you came in, there's a lot of guys who were drinking, smoking, taking people out, a lot of back slappers, and it was a good old boy network. And now half the people I talk to are technology and technologists. But what's nice about what you, your background is you grew up as an operator and as a techie. And uh, I think there's a lot of companies that have great tech, but they aren't necessarily the operators they need to be. And there's a lot of operators, a lot of operators who don't necessarily have the technology chops that they need to have. And the hybrid is what we need. Yeah, I think it takes it takes it all. And and I'm I'm very impressed with a lot of the young people that are coming into our industry. You know, I went to a conference recently, a tech oriented conference. And I thought I, I, I got a little bit sentimental because I was looking around at all the people at this conference and it was all these vibrant, you know, 20 and 30 something young people and a lot of women, which was exciting to see, you know, how many women are getting into the industry. And for me, it was just this, like I said, sentimental moment where I thought, you know, wow, in my career, I've seen a lot of change and, and look where we are today. This feels like we're at a tech conference, you know, and, uh, so I always tell all of our new hires, you know, transportation isn't sexy, but it's a vital industry. And everything that you own has been on a truck or a train or a plane or a ship or probably some combination of all of those. And so, you know, I think we've gone from being just that to, you know, now we've got all this technology wrapped around it. And it, it really makes for an interesting industry and an interesting career. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I'm, I'm an automotive guy originally. When I moved from automotive in 08, 09, when that melted down, I was shocked at how far behind this industry was. And boy, the catch up in the last 10, 10 12 years has been absolutely incredible. The technologies that are out there. And and I always remember, I, I, I worked at a 3PL. We did mostly LTL stuff. And I remember when I showed them, showed my customers the TMS, which is an off the shelf, they looked at me like I was Steve Jobs. <laughs> I mean, I, I walked out of there. It's like, I'm a technologist. Look at me. I'm a tech. I was using off the shelf and I put some PowerPoint slides together and I shared. They were, they would be waving people into the room. You got to see this. You got to see this. And I, it wasn't two years later that I would have the same kind of meeting and someone's like, yeah, yeah, go on, continue. What else you got? What else you got? It was like two years, boom, everybody got it. And I feel like we're in that hyper adoption phase. I mean, maybe sometimes you don't see it. You find these spots that are behind. But in my experience, it was what was new two years later was, mm -hmm, yeah, ho-hum, everyone's got that. You know, I would, I, I, if you've been paying attention to some of the, AI stuff that's happening, GPT-3, right? The natural language processor. And I, I was playing with it the other day and I asked it a question. I said, do you know any computer languages? And it responded and said, yes, I know all of them. I said, okay, do you know Python? <laughs> and it said, yes, I know Python. I'm very adept at Python. I said, 
can you write a Python script that will calculate every prime number less than 10 million? And the next thing I know, it wrote about 40 lines of Python script that I ran and it worked and produced all the prime numbers less than 10 million. So I think we're quickly approaching an age where we're going to actually be able to use AI to write much of the code that we use and software engineers will tweak it and make sure that it conforms with the architecture and the infrastructure. But the, the stuff that's happening fast and furious as we speak is just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. I've, I'm so blown away by AI this today. I saw, I think it was on LinkedIn. It said, podcasters, take your last podcast link in the comments and we'll write an article for you. And I was like, okay. So I, my last interview was with uh, Jake Med, Medwell from uh, 8VC and I cut and pasted it in there. And I'll, I'll, I'll be curious to see if there's an article about me interviewing Jake. So crazy world. But anyway, let's wrap this bad boy up. Doug, first, thank you so much for being on my podcast. What I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, although you're probably not going to reach you're a busy man. You're not going to get to each one of those, but um, we'll put a link to anything that um, your marketing people give me. We'll put a link in the show notes so people can reach out and talk to you guys. Do you guys get to the conferences? We do. So what conferences will you be at? Do you know? Well, we, we go to a lot of investor conferences. We go to the to the Freight Waves conference. We go to CS, CMP. How about Manifest in January? That will be out there. What, what, what day Manifest is that? Manifest in Vegas, late, late January in Vegas. I'm not familiar with that one. Oh, it's the second year, but it's, uh, I, I talked to a lot of people about com- conferences and they always say it was one of the very best they've been to in a long time. That was last year in Vegas. And I think they're two and a half times bigger this year. Everybody's, all the cool kids are going to be there, Doug. Come on. I'll check it out. <laughs> it, Vegas is a slightly warmer than Chicago in January. No, I'll go anywhere in January. <laughs> yeah. So one, one last, one last question here. So, who comes to who comes to Echo and why shipper wise? Shipper wise, it's really a vast array. You know, we we talked about that broad spectrum of sophistication. There's a broad spectrum of shippers. You know, we we deal with all the Fortune 100 companies. You know, that that tends to be more truckload. We deal with mom and pop companies that tends to be more LTL. And our managed transportation business really caters to what I would call the small to mid-sized companies who, you know, maybe don't have a, a real robust transportation department. They, they might have one person that manages transportation and supply chain. And instead of hiring more people, they, they hire us. So it's, it's, it's kind of fun, you know, because on, on one hand, we'll be talking to, you know, a Fortune 100 company. And on the other hand, you know, I'll be, I'll get a call from an upset customer and, Find out that they have three LTL shipments a week. <laughs> and they all matter. Yep. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. Who else should I have on my podcast? Well, you know, we, we talked about Jet. Uh, I think Jet's doing some neat things with technology. I would love to have Jet McCandless on. We've exchanged emails about it lately. but Jet and I are, are good friends. We go back many years, and uh, I watched him start that company and have a lot of success. He's done all right. I'm proud of what he's done. So uh, I think Jet would be a good candidate. Excellent. I will I will reach out to Jet and tell him Doug said you should be on my podcast. Not just Joe, Doug said. <laughs> so and, uh, I, I also have to tell you, you know, we, we work I got I'm throwing out another name. You you ask for one, I'll give you two. 
But uh, I was down in South America two weeks ago with Lean Solutions with Robert Cadena. And, and uh, I was really impressed, you know, with his operation. We have about 300 employees down there and probably take it to 600 before too long. But uh, very impressed with the quality of people that they hire, how they train them, the facilities, and just the whole way that he's built that company. I, I've actually known Robert for 12 years since before he started Lean. In fact, he he was used to run a little brokerage, and I tried to buy it. That's how I first met him. <laughs> you would have gotten a good man there. Yeah, that, that's kind of fresh on my mind because, like I said, I was down in, in the Columbia for a week uh, touring the various locations as well as our own operation, and and I'm real impressed by what they've done. I got to tell you, I think they have eight thousand employees in Columbia. I think they're up to nine thousand. I uh, nine? back in February, I believe. We're at 7,000, and since February, they've grown to 9,000. Yep. And by the way, this podcast is edited and produced by Natalie from Lean Solutions Group. So I work with Lean, and I love working with Natalie. I love working with Lean. But also, I've said this before on my podcast when I interviewed Robert, talked about this, is back in the 80s, which I remember, I was alive then, in the 80s, we started putting back office stuff a lot of financial stuff in Ireland. And then we started putting tech stuff in Ireland. And it was because they were making $25,000 with MBAs over there. So it was a fantastic deal. And now look at Ireland. It is a tech center. It is a financial center. With Companies leave here and move to Ireland because of because there's an uh, opportunities to save on taxes. But also they have that infrastructure. And then we're going to see the same thing with lean. So it starts off as, well, we can save some money by do outsourcing, but soon you realize the expertise is growing there and it's far, far more than just a cost savings. It's who you want to work with. Well, I, there's a lot of things I like about it. You know, they're, they're on a central time zone. I guess this time of year, they're on an Eastern. No, they're the same, exact same time zone today. I know. Well, Natalie, I, I Natalie's sometimes behind me. <laughs> I was working with one of their people down there and I asked her where she was. Her English was impeccable. You know, and I, there was no hint of an accent. And I, I said, where are you from? And she said, Barranquilla. And I said, yeah, but you spent time in the U.S., right? And she says, no, I've never been there. I said, are you serious? Her, her English was so good. And I said, I would have guessed you're from Kansas. And, and she left. Uh, but, but all of the employees uh, are well-educated, great uh, attitudes and great culture. Yeah, I've I've got nothing. But, and by the way, when I did interview for the when I hired Natalie, when I interviewed three people, each one of them had lived in the U.S. and each one was impressive. I mean, I had a choice. By the way, like within two weeks, here's three people who you can interview. And by the way, somebody just reached out to me and said, "Hey, I, I, Joe, who who would you hire for content creation?" And I was like, "Lean." And it's funny they go, "Well, how will I interact with them?" I was like, "Just like you would interact with me on the." with on on teams or zoom it's it's too easy <laughs> so i will definitely see if i can't get robert to come back on my podcast i know he's a, a busy man like you but uh hopefully get him on and hopefully get jet too i'd love to interview both of them so thanks for having me. thank you for having uh the time making the time to come on my podcast and i really appreciate your insights and congrats on your success great well thanks for having me i enjoyed it yep and thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. 
You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.